U.S. aircraft carriers continue to bomb Iraq and Syria from the Gulf, but things are changing. Now we don't do nearly as many. So there's less ISIS to actually target. So who's fighting who in Syria? We've news from NATO and why are China and Russia building up their militaries? The war against the Islamic State group is now in its fourth calendar year. While the RAF has been flying missions from Cyprus, the US Navy has been using its Nimitz-class aircraft carriers to launch thousands of bombing missions over Iraq and Syria. Simon Newton has been aboard the USS Theodore Roosevelt, currently on her second deployment to the Gulf. The sun sets over the Arabian Gulf, a US Navy jet returns from a seven-hour mission over Syria. The sharp end of America's air war on Islamic State. Known as the Big Stick, the Roosevelt was here at the start of operations in 2014. Then the CIA estimated IS had 31,000 fighters. Now militarily in retreat, they're hemmed into a small area of Euphrates River Valley in Syria. The typical uh, amount of sorties for us a day is about 80 across the whole carrier. Captain Chris Ford commands the carrier's air wing. But actually going over the beach in support of uh, Operation Inherent Resolve, on average it's between 14 and 20. We did a lot more strikes back two years ago. We're now we don't do it nearly as many. So there's less ISIS to actually target. The Roosevelt carries more than 70 aircraft, including 44 F-A-18s. Last month, for the first time, she launched strikes on both Islamic State and the Taliban in the same day. The ship carries 298 pilots. Among them is Mark. Like I said, we're there to support the U.S. forces on the ground and to rid the area of ISIS occupation. So a lot of what we're doing now is intelli intelligence gathering, locating ISIS, developing those targets, and then once we have essentially the prerequisites met for that target development, then we'll execute some sort of strike. With Russian regime and coalition jets all flying over Syria, this is a complex battle space. And for America, it's become even more complicated thanks to Turkey's decision to attack US-backed Kurds in northern Syria. Rear Admiral Steve Kaler leads Carrier Strike Group 9. There's the Turks and their uh, their work up north. Uh, there's the Russians involved, the SDF, the, uh, the Syrian regime. And all of those forces are all trying to have a, a certain aim and, uh, and they're all in the same battle space. And the aims are different. And so as you put that tactically on aviators in this case. That is very complex. As well as American aviators, a Royal Navy exchange pilot is also on board. For the past few years, British sailors and airmen have been training on these US warships, preparing for the UK's new QE-class carriers. Rear Admiral Kaler again. It's a phenomenal ship, Queen Elizabeth is, and uh, bring her air arm here and uh, the escort ship that she plans, and I think it's going to be a phenomenal asset to help us out. Before long, the sun drops and the Roosevelt descends into darkness. The rear admiral, a former F-14 pilot, takes me to his private viewing area to watch the landings. And then you see we have them all lined up now. They're starting to come in and it'll come pretty quickly. We land them about once a minute. Even the tiny monitor on my camera has to be closed in case the light distracts the pilots as they approach. The Roosevelt will be in the Gulf for another four months. Three decades after she was built, she's still delivering huge military power. A big stick still hitting hard. Simon Newton for Sitrep in the Arabian Gulf. Well, Christopher Lee, the BFPS defence analyst, is here as ever. Christopher, um, interesting that they're actually having to be much more careful in identifying where the IS targets are. Well, for two reasons. I mean, one is that you don't want to hit anything else. You've got eight or nine uh, countries or, or forces 
uh, within the coalition of the willing um, operating in the same area, sometimes on the se- on on different information about the same target, and it's quite often there is a reluctance for people to actually pass on what they know to other people. But when you've got something like the Nimitz, which is carrying out the main uh, air attack, uh, air ground attack, she relies on her own information, and everybody else ought to be keeping up. That starts off with satellites, and every ninety minutes there's a satellite going over that whole region, uh, maybe three satellites. They, they then when they've identified where the region most likely and where they think there is a particular target, maybe a new target. Um, a target they hadn't seen before because one of these satellites, for example, will be going over an area which was sort of barren and suddenly there are three trucks there parked there, been parked there for two mm. days. Why are they parked there? IS perhaps. Look at the trucks, they know what sort of uh, uh, trucks uh, an and IS leader sort of uh, with, with, his, uh, with his own sort of escorts and close protection carriers. That is the, that is the, the depth of it um, and every country has to be aware that anything they do know, and they have to know the flying sort of likelihood of, say, from the Nimitz, as an, just as one example, um, because the Nimitz ain't going to announce exactly when one of those F-18s is going to get is going to be airborne. Well, I was going to ask you. I mean, we heard from the pilots there talking about um, how they they go out on reconnaissance missions. How long typically does it usually take before identifying possible a possible target to actually carrying out a strike? Well, you don't know because you, I mean it's it's not because it's a secret. You simply don't know. As I say, I suppose you every situation see, is different. No, is you it? see, as I say, somebody says I saw three trucks. A satellite says, I saw three trucks. Somebody else says, have we got anything on that? And it's a bit like sort of CID on your favourite cop show. <laughs> what have we seen? What is it? And suddenly the truck's not there. Um, and then they reappear somewhere else. And then mm. you say, ah, now there's a place. They were in position A. They're now in position B for two days. Could it be that you've got two groups there? You've got IS going to the other headquarters or whatever. Um, and the other thing, the IS is pretty loose on where they are. The IS don't disguise where they are uh, as, as much as you might uh, imagine. They're not sort of underground weevils that sort of, uh, sort of work it out in a dark passage. When are we ready to attack and then, and then spring on the world? So who is fighting who in Syria? Now that the Islamic State group are largely out of the picture, President Assad is fighting for his throne. He's supported by Russia, which is stamping its authority in the region. This week, there were reports of Russians going into direct battle with US special forces. Russia says these are not their soldiers, but mercenaries. So what's really going on and what will be the outcome? Well, let's talk to Joost Hilterman, who is the Middle East and North Africa Programme Director for the Conflict Prevention Organisation, the International Crisis. Group. Good to speak to you today, yours. Have we reached a point in this war when no one is winning? <laughs> yeah, it sometimes looks that way. Um, but I think uh, what we're seeing instead is that the initial conflict between a regime and its people uh, has evolved uh, from a um, basically an insurgency against the regime and then a, proxy, a regional proxy war involving uh, regional states partly supporting the, the regime, others uh, supporting the insurgency. To to, um, to to spin off secondary conflicts, and the original conflict may actually be drawing to a close. It may still take quite a bit of time and quite a bit of suffering, I would say. Um, but we also see conflicts now in eastern Syria on the border with Iraq, uh, on the southern border between Israel and Hezbollah, and um, and potentially in the future also a conflict between the Syrian regime and the um, Kurdish parties that are controlling the uh, the Kurdish 
terrain uh, towards the Turkish border. You say that the original conflict may, may be drawing to a close, but President Assad's forces have taken back thousands of square miles, but it doesn't mean he can hold on to them for long. And that is absolutely true. Uh, and for and to enable the, the regime, rather President Assad, to do so, I think what will be required is um, uh, a major reconstruction effort, which can only be funded by Western nations, um, and for which Russia will need a um, political transition that is genuine and inclusive, as European powers have stipulated, uh, and that might lead in the end toward um, the removal of Bashar al-Assad, but uh, obviously not at the beginning of the process. It is very hard to see how President Assad in particular, having done what he has done, uh, can uh, command authority over re re recovered territory in Syria. So it does seem that the real winners so far are the Iranian tacticians and Russian ground attack squadrons. Doesn't end the war though, does it? No, it doesn't. And we also have to wait and see how that relationship develops. Because for Russia and Iran, they had a shared interest in preserving the regime. And they are in the process of succeeding in that objective. However, when it comes to the next stage, the rebuilding of the Syrian state, which has been much eroded in the, in the past six, seven years, um, th they have different visions. The Russians like a strong state, um, and whether with Bashar al-Assad or without, but a strong state with an army and various security arms that can impose its authority throughout the country. For the, the Iranians have a different methodology, which is directly at loggerheads with the Russian one, which is they uh, prefer to um, to control a country by using various non-state actors and setting them up against one another and coming in as the arbiter. The Iranians have shown this uh, in Iraq and in Lebanon, and they uh, have shown it in Syria as well, and this is their way. And eventually the Russians and the Iranians may simply not agree on how to proceed in preserving their gains uh, that they accomplished on the battlefield. Joost, I introduced you as being from the International Crisis Group, a conflict prevention organization. What can you do, given everything you've just laid out? Well, first of all, we can we can frame the debate in such a way that we can find solutions, uh, uh, negotiated solutions. And so in this sense, it's already important that we understand what these various conflicts, not just the, the main one, but but also the secondary, the spin-off ones, uh, what they're all about, what drives them. We need to understand Syria in terms of layers. Uh, various conflicts in the region are being played out now in Syria. The Israel-Arab conflict, uh, a Kurdish versus, uh, uh, you know, the non-state non having uh, groups against the state having groups, the Arabs in this case, um, and uh, Iran against uh, the Saudi Arabia, all of this. And we need to, if, if, we, if we don't understand these various layers and start uh, just putting band-aids here and there, we may actually do more harm than, than good. So we need, that, that is one thing, is to frame the debate. Just, and then we make, yes. come up with specific uh, proposals as well, on reconstruction and otherwise. Okay, Joost Hiltman, uh, great to talk to you. Thank you so much for your time today. Sit rep with Kate Still to come, Russia and China are building up their military power, but what for? And should the West be worried? The FBS Sit rep.
NATO's defence ministers have been busy planning the biggest shake-up of its command structure since the Cold War. A new cyber command has also been announced. Forces News reporter Laura Makin-Isherwood has grabbed a quick word with the Defence Secretary, Gavin Williamson. Obviously, there was the announcement yesterday that there'll be a new cyber command set-up yes. within shape. Yes. And this morning, the British government have said that Russia was responsible for the attack in Ukraine last summer. Um, is this kind of a response by NATO to prevent cyber attacks from Russia attacking Europe? Well, it's dealing with the reality of how warfare is changing. Um, it's making sure that we have the right ability to deal with the increasing threats. It's no longer about uh, the warfare that will fight just on land, sea and air, but increasingly it will also be cyber and space as well. So NATO has to adapt. It's the most successful alliance in world history. And in order for it to continue to be successful, it has to change, it has to modernise, it has to reform, and it has to be ready to deal with the increasing threats through state actors such as Russia. Of course, the other kind of link to that was the command centre for Europe, for sort of strategy and also infrastructure and movement of troops. It's been reported that Germany is the likely contender for that. Would you then be pushing for a brigade to remain in Germany, as you've said in Parliament? I know we're going through the modernising defence programme at the moment, but does that sort of push towards you know, keeping troops in, in Germany? Well, um, we don't want to uh, prejudge the uh, modernising uh, defence programme. Uh, but we do have to look about how we can ensure that forces that are to the east of Europe are properly reinforced and properly supported. So we're going to be looking at the whole range of different options, but it's a bit too early to make that judgment. We're obviously expecting the announcements on that review by the summer, aren't we? So by then we'll have a good idea of where we're going to have our capabilities. What we're aiming to do is sort of be able to report back uh, before uh, the NATO summit, and that's uh, what we're all working towards delivering. And Laura's colleague Rob Olver is at NATO headquarters in Brussels now. Hello, Rob. Uh, you've mentioned this new command structure before. Were there any more details? Well, um, what I've talked about before is a joint force command for the Atlantic. Uh, that's likely now, we think, to be based in Norfolk, Virginia. Uh, it'll protect shipping lanes across the Atlantic, underseen uh, communication cables and so on. And there'll also be a new joint force logistics and support command that's also trailed previously probably based in Germany. Bonn and Cologne have been mentioned now as possible sites, and its job is to accelerate troop and equipment moves across Europe if needed. Now, the other thing that defence ministers have also agreed to establish here is a new cyber operations centre, and this will be based at SHAPE, NATO's military headquarters near Mons in Belgium, and in a further development, NATO to establish a series of new land component commands, and these will be spread across the continent, their size, make-up, locations, uh, all still to be decided. But we do know that the UK is going to offer around 100 personnel to these various institutions. And Rob, NATO is setting up a training mission in Iraq. What can you tell us about that? Well, until now, uh, Kate, NATO's had a very small, extremely modest training mission in Iraq. Uh, mobile teams of trainers have tended to go into the country for short periods. Now, so-called Islamic State has been expelled from much of the territory it once held. Even so, Baghdad, and the request has come to, from Baghdad, 
uh, wants a much bigger NATO training mission based in the country, something along the lines of the Afghan training mission. And the idea of that would be to bring stability after years of conflict and make Iraq safer. So the mission's aim would essentially be to professionalize the Iraqi forces, uh, NATO trainers to help establish training academies and defense institutions and lend expertise in areas like logistics, battlefield medicine, mine clearance and so on. Mm. What's, if, how much has been said about Afghanistan? Uh, well, NATO defence ministers have also agreed to expand that mission. I mean, the main reason is that Afghanistan is Afghanistan's worsening security situation. There are currently 13,000 troops there. By the end of the year, NATO says that there will be around 16,000, so an increase of 3,000. And Britain currently has around 500 troops, mainly around the capital, Kabul. What about Turkey? Was there much discussion about the tricky situation between America and Turkey with regards to Syria and Kurdish forces? Well, not, not much obvious discussion. There were a few mentions. I mean, the, the situation is that Turkey doesn't like the US training Syrian Kurds who are fighting Islamic State. So uh, Ankara sees Kurdish forces as terrorists and uh, is actually now battling them in northwest Syria. And the problem is that's also where US soldiers are training the Kurds. Um, but the prospect of Turkish troops firing on American NATO allies has been pretty much downplayed here. Mm. And as I said, little has been said publicly, although Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg said that Turkey has legitimate security concerns. But he also said that these concerns should be addressed in a proportionate and measured way. And hey presto, from the, seeing off the same hymn sheet, an identical message from U.S. Defense Secretary James Mattis, um, NATO also says... Turkey is briefing allies continually about its operation in uh, Syria. Mm. Christopher Lee, our defence analyst, is here. Christopher, the defence secretary in that interview with Laura mentioned also uh, space and developing NATO capabilities. What would he be thinking of exactly? Well, you, you would have a you would have a, a phrase in your your mind for the next ten years. Um, there's something now being developed called the third offset strategy. Third offset strategy is basically the technological war that you have to have if you're facing, potentially facing, uh, enemies that have the same sort of thing as you. And so this would be everything from robotic wars. It opens up enormous sort of prospects for commanders once they know how to handle it and once they're developed. But it's a continuing development thing is this third offset strategy, which means you never know where you're ahead. Just because you develop something doesn't mean say, we've got that now, we're on top. You're not. You've got to be developing all the time. Can I just say just a couple of other quick points if you want to know a bit more about the uh, where the command structures, uh, the new command structures. Uh, Norfolk uh, that's just simply developing what was called Sackland, uh, with with the naval, uh, as it turns out to be an uh, American naval officer who will be in command of it. You'll have uh, four British uh, officers on his immediate staff, etc. The other is developed is up from the uh, the lower Atlantic, and that's from a thing called Iberland, which will have the same sort of thing, but probably have a British uh, a, a British command a British commander. Uh, the only other thing is the uh, going back to the, uh, I suppose, this third offset strategy. If you get it wrong, somebody's going to get right ahead of you. Mm. And getting right ahead of you and then 
uh, and this is going to be one of the easiest things to destroy, and that's what they're talking about now. Oh, and by the way, the other thing about Turkey, uh, that has been discussed in the corridors, literally in the corridors, uh, from members not of the Secretary of State's lot, but in fact members of the military committee, mm. which is about to get, as we know, a, a new chairman who is British. But they are basically so saying... Stuart Peach. Yes. Yeah, well, they are saying, now listen, uh, it's a problem... But we can live with a problem like this. After mm. all, we're at war. So, so Robert, in the corridors there where you are in Brussels, have you heard much talk of this third offset strategy? No, I must admit that's the first time I've heard Write of it. Write it down, Rob. <laughs> on, your, on, your, on your cuff. <laughs> <laughs> Did you manage to get any earwigging done there, Rob, in the corridors? I'm just wondering, curious. Um, not really. I mean, I mean, most of... People often wonder about dates. You know, when are these things going to happen? Um, one thing I, I should mention, actually, this um, NATO training mission in Iraq, it's, it's, it's probably unlikely to be launched uh, before July, and that's, that's what they're looking at. Um, clearly, that's uh, an ongoing situation. Um, Islamic State, or the so-called Islamic State, has not disappeared completely, and that's you know, certainly the message you get, even though generally you get the feeling they've, they've been pretty well wiped out. But they still remain a, a big concern here, so that, that's certainly one area and obviously um you know the situation following um the invasion of, of, of crime or the annexation of crimea and uh, russia's uh, suspected involvement in, in ukraine continue to sort of bubble under the surface as an ongoing theme here mm. all right rob over in brussels we'll leave it there for now thank you a leading military think tank has warned of the growing rise in military capability in Russia and China. Every year, the International Institute for Strategic Studies publishes its assessment of global military capabilities and defence economics. For 2018, Deputy Director General of the IISS, Dr Kari Shakur, told our reporter Rosie Layden the West needs to up its game. We in the West have have long had the luxury to take for granted our technological dominance. And what this year's military balance makes clear is that in key areas, that technological dominance is being eroded by China and Russia in particular, and that we uh, and that China in the air-to-air missile category, for example, long-range air-to-air missiles, may already have surpassed our technological prowess. So we in the West really need to up our game. We need to spend more on defense. We need to invest more in research and development. We need to think creatively and asymmetrically about how to keep our military forces war-winning in order to keep our society safe. Do you think that um, Western powers find it difficult to deal with China in terms of, you know, we very much want those trade and economic relations, um, but strategically uh, we, we don't know that, that China is really an ally. Uh, is that tricky? Absolutely it is tricky. And it's not just tricky for Japan and South Korea and Vietnam. It's tricky for Britain and the United States as well, because we want a powerful, prosperous China if it plays by the rules, if the rule of law, if there's not uh, continued stealing of intellectual property, if there isn't flooding of our markets with subsidized goods, right? Like we want a China that plays by our rules. 
whether China's willing to play by our rules is a different question. And so far, the behavior of the Chinese in the South and East China Seas suggests that a rising China is going to be a real challenge to us all. And obviously, it's hard to say um, where this is, where, where where China may be going with um, some of the military developments. I mean, clearly they're building capability and spending the money. Um, could you give me any possible ideas about um, where their ambitions might lie? Uh, so, I it looks to me like a lot of China's investments are either about asymmetrically countering the strengths that militaries like Britain and the United States have, command, control, communications, intelligence, the ISR suite, um, and second, uh, developments that are strictly focused on trying to challenge the ability of the United States to fight close to China's shores in defense of our allies and our allied commitments. So they're moving fast out into blue water navy capabilities, they're moving fast to try and push the risk to the United States of operating forward in defense of Japan, Taiwan, or South Korea. In terms of responding to China, um, Donald Trump was very vocal on the campaign trail, kind of anti-China message. Then there was that, that visit where, where the messages seemed to be much warmer. Where might he go in response to China? <laughs> well, it's anyone's guess with President Trump. But American strategy towards China has actually been strikingly consistent across the last five American presidents, and it was best described by former head of the World Bank, Robert Zellick, which is that we want China to become a responsible stakeholder in the existing order, that is to play by the rules that have helped China to lift 800 million people out of poverty across the last 40 years, um, and to understand that those rules, including America's security relationships in Asia, benefit China as well as benefit us and our allies. And whether China chooses to play by those rules is still an open question. Deputy Director General of the IISS, Corrie Shakur. Now, Oxfam is to be investigated by the charity watchdog over the prostitution scandal engulfing the organisation. Its Deputy Chief Executive has resigned, saying she takes full responsibility for the behaviour of staff in Haiti in 2011. But is there another aspect to this? Could the damage to Oxfam's credibility and the possible knock-on to other NGOs have a serious impact on the search for peace in a region? For example, Syria. What do you think, Christopher? I think this doesn't this raise a, n a number of things, and that is the actual role of the the peace uh, organisations like Oxfam, whether it's uh, Médecins Sans Frontières, uh, things you don't normally think of as the charity. People doing and thinking they're doing good. Uh, that if you start to doubt the motives of some of these people, then you're in trouble. Nobody doubts the motives. The what, they devout, what they doubt is the behaviour. I think the thing um, in this landscape that you see that's changing also for the NGOs and for the charities is that they are becoming targets themselves. When you look at the, the work of terrorists, when you look at the way that IS operates, yeah. they are suffering themselves as well. So the whole landscape in which they're working is changing as well. Yeah, but you see, when you get, for example, the Oxfam thing came up 
And then everybody started to run stories in newspapers saying, oh, and also another charity, another charity. Even uh, MSF, you know, the doctors working in terrible conditions, they too have had to sack people because of their because of their sort of behaviour. Now, I just wonder, you start to... People in the regions who believe these sort of guys, like Oxfam, like uh, Christian Development, etc., and they say, we believe you rather than believe your governments. We believe you rather than believe the people so, around here and the countries we're in. Now we've lost faith in even you. But, but they knew it was going in on that, anyway. In that light, how powerful do you think a charity can be in a region that's in conflict? How useful can it be? I mean, I know you know people in South Sudan, don't you, who work yeah, there? Yeah, I do. I mean, what kind of work can they, what can they achieve in places like that? Apart uh, from the obvious. Well, I tell you what they do achieve. They achieve com the confidence of people in the area. They, they, they achieve the possibility there's got a future for them. So how damaging, I mean, I'm not in, the, in South Sudan, but in specific, this kind of scandal that's hit charities now, how damaging do you think that is the work they can do when you hear the when you see and hear the, the the charities starting to change gear because the heat's on the investigations are on then that doesn't affect people who just need a blanket for three pounds you send three pounds you'll give them a blanket that sort of thing because I, I mean I heard, I've heard former charity workers this week say and there was one that was just speaking vocally the other day yeah. saying don't give to well, I wouldn't give a penny now what will happen now is that it, you and this country at the moment, and they always do it in the winter because it makes you feel cold and therefore you're sympathetic towards refugees. They start all these advertisements on television, send us three quid and we'll send them a blanket. What's going to happen now is people are going to say, to home with that, I'm not sending that lot a blanket. It's going to be an interesting Let campaign. Let them get their own blankets and I don't care where they get them from. And that will destroy the calm influence of a lot of the call them refugee charities and here ends our calm influence for today that's all we have time for this week do check out our video on the forces news facebook page and send us your comments or you can tweet us at bfbs sit rep and subscribe to the show as a podcast i'm kate Chabot. thanks for listening bye bye The best of British news, sport and entertainment for the British forces overseas. This is BFBS Radio 2. Radio 2. The Defence Secretary 